the internet economy is evolving into an investable market almost at the exact moment that we need it to. It's got much greater growth prospects. You're seeing everything that's happening in crypto with composability and all these different projects coming out. The amount of growth that can potentially be captured within this market is certainly attractive. We need an outlet for global savings, right? Because again, 1.5% on a treasury and potentially negative rates or yields in other parts of the world simply doesn't cut it anymore. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and Casper and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, March 5th, and today I'm bringing you a show that has been extremely requested on Twitter and YouTube comments and in every other place that I talk to you guys. This is a Macro 101 show, and my guest today is Kevin Kelly from Delphi Digital. Kevin has been on the show before and does an extremely good job of breaking down complex macro topics in ways that people can understand. Obviously, I think Bitcoin is a macro phenomenon, and so I want to make sure my listeners who don't come from a macro background have the tools to engage with those concepts, even the ones that don't touch Bitcoin specifically, as cogently as they can speak and talk about and discuss Bitcoin. So on today's shows, we're going to get into bond markets, the Fed, and all the different things we lump together as money printing, and Kevin's also going to give you his take on where we are in the macro cycle right now. I know you're going to like this show, and I'm looking forward to the questions that you have coming out of it. All right, Kevin, welcome back to The Breakdown. Great to have you again. It's been a, it's been like a year, I think, like a full actual year at this point. I was going to say, it's been a minute. It's great to be back, man. Thanks for having me. Because I think when we, when we were talking last, it was literally just as the market was finally starting to react to COVID-19. I don't even think we were fully shut down yet. Yeah, no, I, I think it was right on the cusp of you started to see reactions in the bond market, not really a whole lot of reaction stocks. And then obviously, Bitcoin was doing its own thing. So I think we were trying to just kind of parse through, you know, what was going on. Perfect. Well, so that's a great setup. Um, This show comes out of something that I get asked all the time on Twitter, which I think makes tons of sense, right? Like Bitcoin and crypto are often uh, economic gateway drugs for people, right? Who want to understand more about the system that that, uh, these assets are functioning in and more about the world in general. But a lot of times they feel like there are all of these macro concepts that they sort of like, you know, they haven't had a chance to dig into yet. And obviously, like in the course of a a short show every day, I'm not going to do kind of like that full educational content. So I thought what would be fun is to like, really go through some of the big concepts at a high level from bond markets to the Fed to different things that we mean when we say money printing, um, and so on, and just kind of give people a little bit of that 101 framework. Um, You are a really good uh, explainer at this sort of thing. So I feel like we'll have a good time with it. Yeah, no, very much looking forward to it. And when you when you reached out about this, I, I love the idea. And I think, you know, myself included, I've just tried to develop not only a framework, but also giving people an idea of, you know, why things could be happening, you know, the way in which they're happening, right? And, and oftentimes, I joke that, you know, you ask 10 different people what's happening in the market, and, or the, the reason for why things are happening in the market, and you get 10 different answers. And so this, you know, maybe isn't so much, you know, uh, trying to pinpoint exactly why things are happening the way they are, but giving people that framework for trying to understand when things do happen, you know, what, what potentially could be the causes or the catalyst for it. Perfect setup. And with that, let's dive right in. And let's start with, I think, maybe the thing that I've seen people feel like is the most opaque or unclear if you haven't spent time really digging into it, the bond markets. So I guess just to start us off, what are we talking about when we talk about bond markets? 
Yeah. So when you're talking about bond markets, you're really talking about just tradable debt instruments, right? Or debt securities, right? And, and, and there's multiple different kinds of bonds. So when you think about, you know, you talked about the Fed earlier, a lot of that uh, stems around kind of U.S. treasuries, right? So government bonds at a federal level, uh, the U.S. government uh, issuing treasury bonds. But you also have things like municipals, which are at a state or a local level. You've got corporate bonds, right, which there you can uh, kind of bifurcate between your high yield uh, issuers that are a little bit riskier versus your what they call investment grades. You're kind of more uh, tried and true corporate bonds. You've got mortgage bonds. So when you're talking about the bond market, uh, it's definitely a very kind of um, fragmented, but also diverse group of you know tradable debt instruments um, that uh, that investors are piling into. And let's talk about Treasury specifically, because I think for the course of this macro conversation and getting into the Fed and money printing next, they're the one that has kind of the most bearing on some of that those high level concepts. What are the different uh, different types of Treasuries, and how do they function differently for investors? Yeah, so the Treasury market in and of itself, um, you know, it's, it's all uh, backed by the U.S. government, right? Or it's issued by the U.S. government at a federal level. But to your point, there's there's several different kind of kinds or flavors of Treasuries, right? And a lot of this stems from um, several different maturities. And what I mean by that is the U.S. government will come out and they'll issue bonds, but they'll issue them on uh, maturity schedules uh, that differ. So you have you know two year bonds, uh, you'll have ten year uh, Treasury notes, you'll have you know potentially sometimes thirty year Treasury notes. Those are kind of some of the more popular ones. But then you, on the short end, you've also got uh, treasury bills that are usually redeemable uh, within you know a 12-month period. So the, the U.S. government will oftentimes try and use or try and uh, uh, plan which types of, of um, maturity debt that they issue uh, based on what their goals are, right? So you're seeing a, a lot of T-bill issuance, for example, uh, around coming out of the, the, the COVID-19 uh, aftermath, I guess you'd say, um, because you know they're they're going to be expected to kind of roll over this debt, you know, in twelve months' time. Um, but you know, I think that's a really important kind of differentiator is when you're talking about the treasury market, both at the what we call the short end of the curve, which is kind of your your two years and 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 um, uh, earlier, versus your kind of longer end of the curve, which is your you know ten years to, to let's call it thirty years. Those are uh, important to differentiate between because there are different influences uh, that can impact um, both short and long term uh, interest rates and yields, which I'm more than happy to to jump into. Yeah, I think it would be good to uh, so let's let if we view our kind of objective as someone being able to turn on the horrible, stupid mainstream cable news, uh, financial cable news, <laughs> understand what people are talking about when they're talking about you know ten year rates or thirty year rates. You know, let's let's dig in just a little bit deeper on some of the differences and how investors think about them, perhaps also in relationship to other parts of the market. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so on the short end, as I mentioned, the short end of the curve, right? So your, your T bills, but also really kind of your your two year uh, uh, U.S. Treasury notes. Those are oftentimes more influenced by central bank policy, right? Specifically around where central banks um, are setting uh, short term interest rates, right? So you think about the Fed. Fed funds rate, those types of things are, are what really are going to kind of impact the short end of the curve. On the longer end, and this is where you get into the differences between the two and also the kind of difference in yield between the two can tell you different things about what the market expects for the economy going forward. The long end of the curve, which is your 10 years and, and let's say 10 years and, and longer maturities, 10 years through 30s, 
that often is is much more influenced by uh, real kind of macroeconomic factors, right? Like the economic growth outlook, inflation expectations, which anyone who's been keeping up with the markets over the last you know week or week or so um, has started to see that long end of the curve. Those those ten year yields start to uh, start to uh, uh, peak higher. Uh, a lot of that has been driven by uh, increased inflation expectations. So a lot of that will influence more kind of the longer end of the curve. And the reason for that is because over that longer maturity, right? If you're holding a bond that's supposed to mature in 10 years from now versus one that's supposed to supposed to mature in, in 12 months from now, you're exposed to a lot more, you know, in, in a potentially inflationary risk, right? Or interest rate risk on the long end, right? Because again, given where yields are today, you know, I think the 10 year this morning was around 1.45%, right? Let's call it 1.5%. If you're going to hold a treasury bond for 10 years and expect to um, uh, get a, a coupon of 1.5% over the next 10 years, that's a long time to you know potentially lock up that capital. And it's not to say that once you buy a treasury, you're locked into that. Obviously, these are tradable instruments. And that's where you see some of these price fluctuations come in. But the general idea is that the short end, much more kind of impacted by central bank policy, the long end uh, has a a greater influence from you know macroeconomic factors like growth outlooks and inflation. So let's actually talk about the inflation piece just in this context for a little bit because I think that people often talk about kind of the you know nominal rate versus the real rate and and as they're looking at expectations as it relates to treasuries. And so if we could get into just a little bit more like if I'm holding this 10-year note uh that has kind of a you know a a 1.5% coupon but I'm expecting inflation higher than that, we get into territory where you're actually potentially expecting to lose money, right? Yeah, and I think that that's a really important um, uh, differentiating factor between nominal rates and real rates, as you mentioned. Real rates essentially being what that nominal yield is, right? That 1.5% less whatever you think inflation expectations are going to be, right? And so for the most part, for most of history, you've seen, uh, as you would expect, kind of a, a positive real uh, real rate, right? Which means let's say you know back 25 years ago, if you had uh, a 10-year treasury at, let's call it 7 or 8%, and inflation expectations were, you know, maybe three percent. Then you would have a real rate around five percent, right? That eight minus the three. Today, what you've gotten into, and what we're what we're seeing, not only in the U.S. but you know, almost across the board, is negative real rates. Meaning today you've got that one point five percent on a ten year treasury that you expect, but inflation expectations are closer to two point three, even potentially moving as high as two point five that some uh, some strategists are calling for here in the next twelve months, which basically means that if you're holding that ten year treasury bond, right? And you held that out to maturity, you would be expected to, or the market expects you to lose lose purchasing power, right? You basically would not be getting enough income from that treasury bond to keep up with the expected rate of inflation going forward. So, how does this impact how investors think about buying and holding these assets or not? And maybe as an additional dimension to that question, a lot of again that conversation in mainstream financial media is about reading the tea leaves of how uh, how rates going up or down, what that means for uh, for treasuries. So maybe we can get into a little bit about what types of what types of signals those different moves might represent. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I think to get to your first question or the first part of your question around what is that kind of relationship with treasuries and how people think about it in the context of a, let's call it a multi-asset portfolio, right? 
very quickly, and this will, I'll tie this back in, this will make sense. When you look at think of things like stocks, right, like the equity market, investors often use, or this this historically has been used, uh, various methods for kind of valuing stocks, right? So one of the most popular that, that I'm sure people are familiar with uh, being this idea of a discounted uh, cash flow model, right? And essentially what you're doing there is you're taking whatever you think expected future cash flows are for a specific stock, and you're discounting that back to the present value. And in order to discount that back, you use what's called a discount rate, right? And Oftentimes, that's that's uh, plugged in as the risk-free rate or what you would expect to get on a, a U.S. Treasury, for example, or a U.S. Treasury bond. And so the way in which you can kind of think about discount rates in U.S. Treasuries and how that kind of fits into a broader investing framework is it's almost a measure of opportunity costs in a way, right? So if we go back to that example 25 years ago, if you're getting 7 or 8%, they're expected to get 7 8% annually on a, on a U.S. Treasury bond, well, that's a pretty high hurdle rate for investing in some type of equity or stock, right? It, it has to kind of, uh, the expected return has to kind of be above that, or else you might as well just go into US treasuries because that is quote unquote, you know, more of a kind of a risk-free play. What you tend to see though is, you know, when rates rise, so too does this this, this discount rate that you use to kind of uh, discount back and, and evaluate uh, the equity market. And so the higher the discount rate, all else held equal, usually the lower the present value of expected future cash flows. Now, why this is important and where this kind of ties into what you're seeing in a, in a broader kind of macro standpoint today is when you have yields that are as low as they are today, and even as we just talked about negative real rates, this idea of kind of the time value of money, right, almost kind of goes out the window, right? So people are and investors are, are much more willing to pay for these high flying kind of tech and growth stocks that maybe aren't even profitable today, right, or operating with major losses. And you're seeing this with the different companies that are coming to market, whether it's in the IPOs or direct listings. Investors, long story short, are willing to pay or hold on to these stocks that maybe don't even have any real uh, trajectory for profitability in the in the short term because so much of the valuation is now way, way out into the future uh, and is based on uh, what these companies can do way, way out in the future because there isn't really this massive opportunity cost of holding something like a treasury bond. And so where it gets important, and we can get into this in, in, a, in a little bit after we've uh, developed some of these kind of foundational principles, is I think this is having really, really perverse uh, impacts on not only just asset prices, but the way in which investors are thinking about markets, the way in which they're starting to use markets as savings vehicles and things of that nature, right? So that's kind of the first part, how the treasury rates or, or where yields are today can actually impact uh, investing uh, from a multi-asset portfolio perspective. But to your uh, second point around, what does it mean when you're seeing these fluctuations? There's a lot of different drivers, right, for treasury uh, rates and treasury yields. And so, like all other assets, you know, a lot of the bond prices are impacted by things like changes in supply and demand, right? So you think about on the supply side, we talked about, you know, treasuries being a U.S. government instrument, right? U.S. government issues that debt. Well, if the supply of the amount of uh, government debt uh, is expected to increase uh, and increase significantly, as we've seen kind of, again, in this kind of post-COVID uh, uh, era, so to speak, then you know potentially you could see pressure on bond prices because that supply is going to outstrip that demand. On the demand side, you've got a lot of different types of buyers for treasuries. You've got the Fed, obviously, which has had a huge impact and become much more of a kind of 
active market participant uh, these days. You've also got foreign central banks that hold these, and it's one of the reasons why you know treasuries and the dollar continue to be uh, the world's uh, go-to reserve currency and the world's go-to reserve asset. You've got private and foreign investors, and so long story short, the the kind of supply demand dynamics can have pretty uh, large impacts around you know what the prices are for uh, U.S. Treasury bonds on different parts of the curve. So let's maybe take one specific example, just because I know we're not going to get as uh, be able to go as kind of deep as as I would love to in this. But last week um, we saw a spike up in treasury prices, where on one day they went from like one point. This is the ten year. They went up from like one point three eight percent all the way up to one point six. What did you see the mark? What did you see as the popular kind of narrative or interpretation of that? I know it's hard to definitively say it was caused by X, Y, or Z, but how were people uh, interpreting? that move. Yeah, very much so, at least from my understanding and what I was able to garner, very much so around inflation expectations, right? And if you turn on any, and this goes not only to traditional financial media, but you know, every now and then I'll, I'll toss on CNN just to see kind of what, um, uh, let's call it the average American potentially could be listening to or watching, right? And what, what information is being conveyed to them. They're talking about, you know, the potential for runaway inflation on, you know, major networks like CNN, right? So I think a lot of the kind of price action last week uh, was at least uh, in part or stemmed from the idea that we are going to see higher inflation going forward. And interestingly, when you talk about inflation, one of the actual best predictors of future inflation is the expectations for future inflation today. And so I, I know it's a it's a bit counterintuitive, but basically it says if people expect higher inflation today then they're going to, if you're a business, potentially raise prices, right? If you're a consumer, maybe you're going to potentially go out and spend more today because you expect uh, uh, prices to rise. However, that impacts you from a behavior standpoint can actually end up creating or causing inflation to move higher if expectations today for future inflation are moving higher in and of itself. Super interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think I have to kind of cut myself off from from going deeper on this because otherwise it'll it'll take all of our time. But <laughs> I know people have follow ups. We'll do another one at some point. Maybe we'll do a whole show just on the bond markets at some point. But let's talk about um, the Fed uh, and the Federal Reserve because obviously, especially in the Bitcoin context, this is something that comes up a lot. So I guess let's start at the highest level. Uh, what are the Fed's actual mandates, and then perhaps we can segue from there into what are the Fed's main tools. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so the Fed's mandates, uh, typically people refer to the Fed's mandate as a dual mandate, uh, maximum employment, price stability, and this third one, which is kind of moderate long-term interest rates, which really that and price stability go hand in hand. So if you think about it, dual mandate, maximum employment, and price stability. And price stability really refers to, uh, as we're talking about here, right, the level of inflation, right? And having that be not only moderate, but predictable over the long term. And so the Fed really is balancing between strong employment, but having strong enough employment where you're not seeing inflation really start to creep up, right? So that's kind of the the, the dance or, or the balance that the Fed uh, often has to has to walk, and so when it comes to as you mentioned, you know, what are the Fed's tools? They have a number of of things that they can do to kind of um, play with these different gauges, right? To to try and again achieve that balance between max. Uh, maximum employment and price stability. And so one of them, as we've already talked about, is is this discount rate, right? So essentially setting um, the Fed funds rate, uh, which is which is used for short-term bank lending, but basically uh, uh, sh setting short-term interest rates um, because those become the benchmark for kind of general interest rates, right? So times in which you see, and we'll use, you know, the right after uh, uh, 2008, but as we also just saw, you know, post uh, post the initial kind of COVID outbreak, 
Fed dropping rates to uh, 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 interest rates to zero essentially is trying to stimulate the economy in a number of different ways, one of which just encouraging lending, encouraging people to spend more. It disencourages or disincentivizes people to save because you're not earning very much on uh, on, on savings accounts or, or um, savings vehicles. So the discount rate is one way in which uh, or one tool the, the Fed has in its arsenal. Another is uh, looking at uh, bank reserve requirements, right? So in theory, uh, 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 banks have to hold a certain amount of reserves uh, with the Fed, and they also have to hold a certain amount of reserves uh, on their on their balance sheet compared to uh, how much um, uh, they're lending or how much they're, they're they're loaning out. And so, when the Fed can, comes in and says, "Okay, we're going to lower the bank reserve requirements," essentially what that means is there's more capital uh, that should be available for banks to be able to lend out, right? And the theory is. More money to lend out encourages them to lend it out. They'll lend it out to consumers and businesses, and that will start to hopefully jumpstart the economy, jumpstart economic growth. Because now you're putting more uh, hypothetically, you're trying to put more money into the system, right? Um, and the the third one uh, that, that's that's big is open market operations, right? And this is really where we get into. Um, Things like quantitative easing and, and big asset purchase programs, and this is the buying and selling of treasuries, and now you know other other uh, potential securities, and the impact of these policy tools is really to um, not only uh, uh, impact financial markets in a in a direct way, right? Whether it's changing interest rates or actually buying uh, and selling uh, uh, treasury bonds, but also it can certainly have an impact on the confidence of investors, um, and and it really depends on how much the market kind of trust the Fed's forward guidance, right? So what I mean by that is if you expect the Fed to come to the rescue every time, let's say the S&P 500 goes through a volatile period, or you see markets sell off, or you see an elevated period of market volatility, well, then you as an investor, your behavior, your your confidence around uh, you know the Fed's ability to come and save you may cause you to go further and further out the risk curve, right? So there's there's a handful of policy tools that they have, but they can impact markets and impact investor behavior in a number of different unique ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I I uh I wanna, I guess, maybe get into the the sort of the set of things that we colloquially lump together as money printing, you know, these sort of open market operations in just a minute. But first, again, just for the sake of really one oh one ing this thing, let's can you talk just briefly about the difference between monetary and fiscal policy? Absolutely. So monetary policy you can think of is is really everything has to do when we talk about central banks and the Fed and and that revolves around interest rates, as I mentioned, and really controlling the money supply, right? So anything that changes interest rates or changes the uh, 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 potential money supply uh, that, or, or, or I should say the trajectory of what the money supply looks like, um, that's going to stem uh, or center around monetary policy, right? Fiscal policy, on the other hand, is anything that has to do with government spending, taxation. And so oftentimes, it's a, I'm really glad you brought this up because it's, it's, it's a very important kind of differentiator. Oftentimes, what you'll see is monetary and fiscal policy are independent of one another, right? Because you have, you know, for example, in the US, you have, you have Congress and lawmakers on one hand that are um, impacting fiscal policy. And then you've got your central bankers like Jay Powell and co on the monetary side for central banks impacting uh, interest rates or determining what, you know, they, they want the money supply to look like. And so what's interesting today and why I think this is actually more important to differentiate today, you know, more so than ever is because the line between monetary and fiscal policy, especially here in the U.S., has gotten extremely blurred. And one of the reasons for that for that is because the two are almost working together at this point, right? So you've got on the fiscal front, if, if we, run the, we run the clock really quickly, 
right after we saw the you know the outbreak of COVID and we saw you know government lockdowns and we had this whole period of you know aggregate demand really kind of falling off a cliff. You had uh, uh, fiscal policymakers come in and and pass that two point two trillion dollar you know CARES Act stimulus package relatively quickly, right? And what that basically means is they're going to a big part of this was try and put money into the pockets of uh, uh, the average American, right? Actually, give money to the people to be able to help them sustain or get through this this difficult time. In order for the um, government to be able to do that, they have to finance that in some way, right? And so, oftentimes, this comes in the form of in- increasing treasury issuance. So they basically sell, you know, treasury bonds to finance government spending to be able to kind of fill this this huge hole in uh, demand uh, that that people were going through. Now, if that that taken by itself, you know, potentially, as, as I just mentioned, in terms of the kind of supply dynamics for the treasury market, if you're increasing supply without an increase in demand, all else held equal, that potentially could cause serious problems for treasury prices. You could see yields uh, really start to spike up. And so what monetary policy and, and the Fed, on, on the other hand, are now doing is basically monetizing that debt. And what that means is fiscal policy comes out, finances government spending by issuing treasury bonds. Monetary policy steps in and says, okay, we are going to be one of the backstops who is buying up or soaking up that excess treasury issuance so that we don't see some type of um, uh, uh, bond market freakout, for lack of a better word, right? You're not going to see people kind of running away from treasuries because they think there's all the supply that's going to come to market and there's not going to be enough demand that's going to be able to backstop it. And so, again, I think it is just an important point to highlight because the two oftentimes don't necessarily work in tandem, right? And, and they're actually two different levers that you can pull depending on what your the longer term kind of economic goals are and what the current economic landscape looks like. But given how severe, you know, the, the most recent recession has been uh, and the and the longstanding impacts that it potentially has, monetary and fiscal policy are very much, you know, two sides of the same coin right now. Yeah. And a, a lot of what we saw last year was the Fed really being the buyer for all these treasuries that were issued. It wasn't going to foreign governments and other types of investors, right? Yeah. And and that's a really important long-term trend as well, because when you think about, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, how, how do we get out of this, right? How does, how does the Fed kind of remove itself from the equation? And as much as I hate to be the, the kind of doomsday guy, it's very, very difficult um, for the Fed to kind of remove themselves from the equation at this point, because again, if the expectation is for you know fiscal, uh, for for all this treasury issuance to come to market, and now you've got you know a U.S. national debt that, depending on how you want to gauge it, right, whether it's it's what they consider kind of marketable securities or ones that are still you know held quote unquote kind of off balance sheet, you've got you know 115 percent of GDP uh, uh, that's represented by our national debt today, right, and that's probably expected to continue to increase, you know, at least here in the in the for the foreseeable future. And so why that's important is because once you hit these types of levels, historically what you tend to see is this this is kind of the I guess writing on the wall for the demise of uh, uh, that country's currency, right? Because eventually people just kind of, you know, look at that, they'll look at treasury bonds and say, okay, there is no real practical way for the U.S. to be able to pay this money back aside from either, you know, defaulting, uh, raising taxes, austerity, which we can get into in a second, or, and this is kind of the base case, I think, for a lot of people now, you basically just try and inflate that debt away, right? You inflate away the real value of that. And why that's important is because it can really, um, 
dictate or influence, you know, investor um, confidence in the U.S. Treasury market. And from there, once you lose, you know, a lot of a lot of investing is, is very much a confidence game, right? And the U.S. Treasury market is a perfect example of that. Once investors, especially foreign investors, lose confidence in, let's say, U.S. Treasuries, and they start to shy away from that and in 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 substitute for kind of other alternatives or other places to put their money, well, then it becomes a really kind of potentially vicious circle, right? Because then the Fed essentially is on the hook or puts more pressure on them to be the kind of buyer of last resort or soak up, you know, a, a rising amount of kind of excess issuance from the from the Treasury, um, and you can get into this really really you know uh, difficult death spiral, I guess you could say, for, for lack of a better word. Um, and so it is an important um, uh, to, to, to understand kind of who the who the end buyers are of this treasury debt and how those dynamics are changing and potentially forecast to change going forward, just given the level of debt we have today here in the U.S. Looking for the best way to unlock your crypto's liquidity? Nexo.io is exactly what you need. Borrow against your digital assets at just 5.9% APR, earn passive income with yields of up to 12%, and swap between more than 75 market pairs with the instant Nexo exchange. Try the Nexo wallet app to get the whole 360 degrees of crypto banking. Get started at Nexo.io. Until now, blockchain technology has been a series of compromises. No layer one protocol exists in the market that supports everything enterprises, developers, and consumers need from decentralized applications. Meet Casper. Casper provides the blockchain ecosystem with a solution that makes no compromises around decentralization, security, or performance. Learn more at casper.network. I'm looking at this list of concepts that we had, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way we're going to get through all of these today. <laughs> so what I, what I think we should do is actually maybe segue from here into maybe trying to tease out and break apart like all of these things that we call money printing, which you've already kind of alluded to, but like give each their own little space. And then from there, maybe wrap up with just kind of your summary of, of maybe kind of like the, the high level picture of where we are now and what you're watching. And then we can come back to maybe these other things. If people like this episode, we can do a, a 102 and uh, and come at some of these other concepts, inflation, deflation, debt, reserve currency, shadow bank, all this sort of stuff too. Um, but for now, maybe let's, uh, let's move into just kind of like trying to kind of tease out everything that we mean when we say money printing, right? So we use this kind of interchangeably to talk about quantitative easing, asset purchase programs. I mean, other things that aren't exactly in the money printing bucket, but they still get lumped together is we talk about liquidity moving into the market. We talk about zero interest rate policy policies or negative interest rate policies, yield curve control, all these concepts are sort of in the same vein, but they're they're worth kind of separating out, I guess. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, at, at, a, at a very high level, I think one of the um, almost common misconceptions at this point is, and and don't get me wrong, I, I very much subscribe to the money printer go burr memes, and I'm I'm by no means trying to uh, to disprove that. But I do think there is a misconception around how money actually gets quote unquote printed, right? And how money supply actually increases. And it's not as simple as the Fed essentially printing money and that base and that increasing money supply and 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 you know the the, the buck kind of stops there. It does require a large kind of buy-in from the banking sector. That's that's how our system is set up at this point, where the Fed, you know, can come out, and this is really where quantitative easing comes in. The Fed can come out and buy up treasury debt, right? As we talked about, 
but they're not necessarily buying up treasury debt and giving it to you know your your average joe right what they're doing is they're buying it from from uh, essentially taking it from the banking sector right they're buying it off the banking balance sheets in exchange for bank reserves and if banks all you know it, it, all else are equal if those banks are encouraged and they have the right conditions to go out and lend those increased reserves, that's where you start to get money supply increases, right? Because you're, you're, you're increasing the amount of credit that's in the system. You're actually increasing the money supply. But simply the, the Fed just buying treasuries does not equate to uh, money printing, quote unquote, if you don't also have the buy-in from the banking sector. And I'm happy to go into that, but I want to I want to pause there and take it in the direction that you want to, because I know that is a very important kind of topic. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more before we talk about the other pieces, because I, th I think it's really important too. And it gets at, you know, there's there's another dimension of this, which is maybe a, a bridge off, but people always ask, why isn't this producing inflation? And there's this dimension of it, but there's also the dimension of the velocity of money, which may be worth just touching on briefly too. Yeah. So so if we rewind and we go quantitative easing, you know, the Fed coming in buying treasuries, buying it from, let's call it the banking sector or the banking system and increasing the amount of reserves, right? They kind of swap for treasuries for reserves. If you have the market conditions that are conducive for banks to lend, right? Where, you know, you've got rates that are relatively low, but on the high end, um, it's still profitable for banks to lend. And you have some type of backstop that the Fed puts in, that encourages them to lend, then you can start to see money supply really increase because that bank lending to consumers, to businesses, whether that's big or small, that money gets into the system that winds up becoming, you know, deposits into another bank, which with our frank, fresh, uh, 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 fractional reserve banking system basically allows the creation of credit, right? And that's really where you see a large, you know, majority of uh, what we consider to be money supply increases actually stem from. The problem is, how do central banks, it's almost like central banks can lead a horse, the horse being banks to water, but can't make them drink, right? You can lead or give banks the proper conditions that you would think are conducive for them to lend, but you can't necessarily force them to lend. And where you saw this really kind of come in was post 2008. To your point, you had a ton of uh, quote unquote money printing, right? You had a ton of kind of treasury bond uh, purchases from, from the Fed, putting it on their balance sheet, swapping it for reserves, but you didn't see a whole lot of inflation really, really kind of percolate or, 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 uh, or, or, rot or uh, stem up. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of this money ended up actually just getting trapped within the financial sector, right? And so you saw, I'm sure you didn't see inflation in consumer prices, but you saw in a lot of inflation when it comes to asset prices, you know, stock market, things of that nature. And so what's important, and you, you kind of dovetail this with the, the velocity of money concept, you know, the idea that if you have this money actually getting into the hands of consumers, then and, and businesses, right, the, the real economy, that is where you start to see inflationary pressures start to start to creep up. And one of the reasons bringing it back to what we were just talking about with last week and inflation expectations rising, you're seeing that show up in the treasury market, a treasury bond market, one of the reasons why this time is quote unquote potentially different is because now you have that fiscal aspect, right? You have the actual direct payments from fiscal stimulus that are going into the real economy that the Fed is monetizing, but that money is actually getting in the hands of consumers, right? You're getting, you're actually giving people a, a direct injection of cash. Whereas the flip side, where it's really kind of your post 2008 period, 
that money was brought into the financial sector, but it wasn't necessarily lent out, right? It, it took a long time for banks to come come around to uh, lending this out to consumers, lending it out to businesses, because there was still a lot of scar tissue from what had happened in 2008, right? And so you had, you know, some of these banks that were a bit more conservative or simply just did not want to lend to, you know, your average Joe. And so I think that's a really important differentiator between when you talk about money printing, how it actually gets into the market. You know, I certainly think that, again, at a certain point, the Fed and fiscal, the monetary and fiscal policy almost have to work together at this point because you can't go through another post-2008 period where you basically just have the Fed buy up a bunch of treasury debt. Yes, that can have longer-term impacts on, again, investor behavior and, and confidence in markets, but it's not actually getting hands in the people who need it most. And that's where you start to see inflation pressures really start to, to potentially perk up is when you can get money into the hands of the people who need it, whether that's through direct payments or whether that's through you know the creation of credit via you know the, the traditional uh, uh, banking sector, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, again, I think this is something that we could go a lot deeper in, but I, I did want to give folks that at least that kind of like, you know, high level overview of the mechanism by which um, this actually flows into the system or doesn't. Uh, because if only to be able to fight the regular fintwit battles where people are like, well, this doesn't actually increase the money supply. So hopefully people feel a little bit more armed to, to have that conversation. I guess let's talk about some of the other uh, parts of this money printing equation or other things that people talk about as they've kind of... It, it, Almost all of these things fall under the category of policies that people find extraordinary vis-a-vis -vis the Fed. You know, so I'm not sure. Maybe we can just kind of you can pick and choose what we should focus on, be it yield curve control or or any of these other ideas. Yeah, I think yield curve control is actually a very relevant one to dig into because, you know, essentially what that means is as we talked about, you've got central banks who will come in and I'll continue to use the Fed as just kind of our base example. They'll come in and they'll buy treasury debt, right? And they'll buy different uh, uh, maturities of, of treasury debt, right? So as we talked about in the very beginning, you have you know two-year yields, or excuse me, uh, uh, two-year notes, you've got 10-year notes, you've got 30-year bonds. The Fed will essentially come in and buy different parts of, quote unquote, the treasury curve. So what yield curve control really does is central banks essentially kind of anchor longer-term interest rates, right? And a, a prime example of this is, is Japan. Japan implemented this uh, back in, in late 2016 and basically said, we are going to anchor you know, long-term, and, and by long-term, this was 10-year yields. We're going to anchor 10-year yields close to basically 0%, right? And this is, this is the Japan example. We're going to anchor yields close to 10-year yields close to 10% or 0%. And so it was really interesting. Part of this is to say, okay, we're going to have a very kind of transparent, predictable policy. And, and the big difference between this versus just traditional quantitative easing is today's quantitative easing for the Fed looks like we're going to buy X amount of treasury bonds every single month, right? Whether it's 80 billion, whether it's 120 billion, that number can change, but that's really, that's really where they're being predictable. Yield curve control kind of flips that on its head and goes, we are going to anchor longer term rates, right? Or longer term yields at a certain percentage at a certain point and the uh, amount that we're going to purchase on for 10-year yields the amount that we're going to purchase in 10-year bonds is up in the air right we're going to basically use as much or as little as we need to to keep yields anchored to what our target is what was really interesting about you know, the way in which japan implemented this and and I'll take this in a pre versus post COVID world because post COVID, everybody had to come out and start to uh, monetize more of their debt, right? The, the Bank of Japan included. But actually, leading up to kind of the, the pre COVID period, what was really interesting is that 
as soon as the BOJ came out and said that they were going to do this and, and do, quote unquote, whatever it takes essentially to anchor 10 year yields at zero percent, it actually caused investors to basically assume this would happen. Right. It would cause investors to assume that any really significant deviation from this, if, if let's say 10 year yields move closer to one percent, they assume the BOJ would come right in, purchase up a bunch of 10 year notes and drive the, the yields back down to zero percent. Because investors thought this, uh, it actually turned out that the, the BOJ could actually slow its rate of asset purchases because there was the investor assumption that they would come in and be the backstop if things got out got, got out of hand, right, or, or deviated far from what their target was. So why this is relevant now is because there's a lot of talk around, especially with now 10-year treasury yields rising, what is the Fed going, what is the next kind of evolution of, of Fed policy or what can the Fed do in addition to what it's already doing and how can it send us uh, signals to the market that this accommodative monetary policy is going to be here for the foreseeable future, right? If the Fed comes out and implements something like yield curve control and does something similar to what Japan does, the hope you know, for them would probably be that they come out, they say they're going to do this. Let's say they anchor you know, 10-year yields at 1.5%, right? Close to where they are today. The idea being, hopefully, maybe they could even slow their asset purchases because everyone just assumes that that backstop is going to be there, right? The Fed backstop is going to be there. Where this gets a little bit dicey is a lot of this is very, very heavily dependent on the market expectations or the market's trust in what the Fed is saying, right? And with their forward guidance. If the market doesn't trust that the Fed's going to be there as this backstop, then as we just talked about, your kind of demand side for treasuries, right? You're you're not so much the Fed, but your foreign investors, you know, even potentially foreign central banks, private sector investors. If everyone, you know, doesn't have the confidence and thinks that they're going to let yields continue to run, then maybe they'll shy away or they'll sell out of their treasury debt, which puts more pressure on the Fed to buy more of that treasury debt to keep, you know, yields uh, uh, anchored to what their target rates are. And so why it's really important is because I think, you know, personally, if you see the Fed come out and start to talk about and they've addressed it, but they haven't officially come out and said this. If you see the Fed come out and say, we are going to implement some type of yield curve control. I think, to be honest with you, things like Bitcoin, but even precious metals like gold, silver, I think, honestly, it's off to the races for them because that is almost one of the best case scenarios, right? Not from an economic standpoint, but from a pure investor standpoint, because what that'll end up doing is you'll have nominal yields that are anchored. We talked about the difference between nominal and real yields. Nominal yields will be anchored. Inflation expectations are likely to you know, continue to run higher if you get some type of yield curve control. Uh, um, uh, rhetoric from the Fed. And what that'll probably do is drive, you know, real rates back into deeper negative territory, which is kind of a, a perfect storm for, you know, Bitcoin, uh, gold, silver, and then obviously, you know, some of these these higher kind of uh, tech slash, slash growth growth type names as well. So it's very important, you know, to, to, to watch for, I guess, going forward. And that's why a lot of people really dig through uh, the, the Fed commentary and, you know, people are, are constantly watching, you know, Jay Powell and everything that he says. And sometimes, you know, people can think that that's a little bit excessive, but the moment the market interprets whatever he is saying or, or whatever, you know, Fed policymaker is saying as something that gets close to something like yield curve control, that's when you put on a lot of positions and that's where things could get, you know, potentially pretty crazy. So uh, this is actually a perfect segue because I've had you now kind of explaining concepts, providing frameworks for about 40 minutes. Let's just use by way of kind of wrapping up uh, the last few minutes to get your take on where things are. You know, we're a year out. It's the beautiful one year anniversary of our two week lockdown. And, um, you know, we've got a new administration uh, that has come to power. 
Uh, what are you seeing kind of from this macro Fed perspective? What are you watching? What seems important? What are the things that we, you know, aren't sure of yet, but uh, could be big kind of inflection points? I mean, give us your subjective take now on on where things are from kind of a macro perspective. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talked about coming into, you know, we'll, we'll say before this, this uh, most recent administration change, you know, how much uh, whoever won uh, the U.S. presidency really mattered. And to be honest, yes, there were a lot of things, you know, not only from just a, a social standpoint, but from an economic standpoint that matter and the differences between what a you know Republican administration versus a Democratic administration would look like. But to be honest with you, I almost think the genie's out of the, uh, out of the bottle when it comes to this monetary and fiscal kind of intertwined, interconnected world that we now find ourselves in. And, and what I mean by that is the markets and the economy are much more interconnected now than they were before. And part of the reason for that is almost, you know, this hole that we've dug ourselves that isn't necessarily the fault of one person, but more so, you know, decades and decades and decades of what was considered kind of conventional, you know, monetary policy that's now gotten us to this point. So what I mean by that is over the last, you know, several decades, you've seen interest rates trend lower. You've seen central banks really slashing rates, especially in, in, the, in the wake of you know, financial crises. And what that's essentially done is it's forced investors further and further out the risk curve, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is if you're a pension fund, for example, right, and you have these long duration liabilities and you need to, uh, or your, your, your target rate of return every year is somewhere around, let's call it seven and a half, maybe 8% a year, right? Back 25, 30 years ago, you could have actually achieved that on uh, a nominal basis. You could have achieved that by holding a portfolio that was essentially consisted of entirely, you know, U.S. Treasury debt, right? Especially on the long end, you were getting seven, eight, you know, potentially even ten percent yields uh, on Treasury debt. Now, you know, given you know where yields are today, we talked about one point five on the on the ten year Treasury. Now, in order to achieve that same type of required return, you have to go further and further out the risk curve to get that, right? So now, a majority of your portfolio is in things like equities, right? The stock market. It's in a liquid investments like potentially private equity or, or venture capital. It's in some of these alternatives, which can be fantastic uh, dif um, uh, diversifiers. But when you start to get people uh, uh, using, and I think uh, uh, Corey Hofstein uh, from, from Newfound Research does a really good job of explaining this kind of concept around central banks, essentially with, with rates falling, forcing people to use markets as a savings vehicle, right? Which I think is a really important differentiator. Now, if people are using the market as more of a savings vehicle to achieve these, you know, what were considered average returns, you know, historically, if you have to take more and more risk to achieve that return, well, then the markets in the actual real economy become much more interconnected because if you see the S&P 500, for example, you know, drop by 10, 15, maybe 20 percent, well, all of a sudden that's going to start that's going to start feeding into uh, consumption patterns. It's going to start feeding into investor confidence, which feeds into consumer confidence because the markets in the economy are much more interconnected now. And so what I think is is difficult is, you know, what is the path forward from here? And I, I just don't see how debt monetization really I think it's here to stay for the foreseeable future because trying to remove the Fed and other central banks from the equation at this point, it's almost like we've gone too far, right? And developed markets are propped up by you know debt-fueled growth. So 
you don't have this organic growth that can really come through and kind of pull us out of um, this, 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 these large debt burdens that we're facing. And so one, I think U.S. Treasuries carry more risk than, than a lot of people anticipate or expect. I mean, we put out a note, uh, I think it was about six or eight weeks ago now talking about this, because again, if you just think about growth and inflation expectations, if those rise, if you saw any type of you know optimism around the vaccine, you're going to see expectations for growth and inflation rise, which really is going to put pressure on U.S. Treasury uh, Treasury yields and and uh, as a corollary uh, Treasury prices. You've got structural forces that are set up for a weaker U.S. dollar over the long term, and so that's kind of the pessimistic side of things. Where I think this actually ties into you know our world of you know macro, but also uh, uh, crypto and Bitcoin and and this whole kind of emerging uh, internet economy is I think you're going to see a lot of increased capital flow from conventional assets to the internet economy because if you think about it in a weird way, the internet economy is evolving into an investable market almost at the exact moment that we need it to, right? It's It's got much greater growth prospects. You're seeing everything that's happening in crypto with composability and all these different projects coming out. The amount of growth that can potentially be captured within this market is is certainly attractive. It's not a uh, burden with the high type of debt levels that we typically see in the conventional assets or conventional markets. We need an outlet for global savings, right? Because again, you know, 1.5% on a treasury and potentially negative rates uh, or yields in other parts of the in other parts of the world simply doesn't cut it anymore. So you need these higher yields on savings vehicles. And this concept around, you know, uh, the internet economy almost needing a, a universal asset on which to kind of build this this better, more equitable financial system. Again, you know, Bitcoin, while it is extremely volatile, or I should say, you know, its volatility profile is above average in the short term. Long term, if it gets to be, you know, as large as we all think it really can be, honestly, it might become a little bit less sexy. The volatility certainly we expect to be suppressed, and it almost becomes, you know, the greatest form of collateral that we've ever seen, right? Because the internet economy. It's going to need a collateral asset that's permissionless, that's secure, that has a predictable supply, right? All these types of things. And then top on top of that, the accessibility of crypto assets and and, uh, the crypto market in and of itself. I just think a lot of this increased capital flow is going to try and move to the internet economy in the short term, chasing some of these returns, chasing some of this yield, chasing some of this growth. But to be honest with you, you know, over the long term, I certainly think that it could actually be a gateway or, or a way to help alleviate some of these really big, you know, systemic issues that we're facing today, especially when you talk about things like widening wealth inequality and, and now the accessibility for people to actually come in and, and you know, build a, a nest egg for themselves by, um, you know, getting involved in, in the digital asset market is one of those things where, you know, I, I feel like oftentimes, you know, being a, a macro strategist, a lot of what you read is very kind of doomsday, right? It's a lot of, you know, this is what's wrong and there's really no way to fix it. And so I've been trying to focus a lot more time, you know, especially as of recent, trying to take the flip side of that and say, okay, how do we actually rebuild, you know, uh, the, the financial future that we want, but how do we also use the tools and and, and the different um, uh, uh, protocols and products that are being built today to actually improve and potentially, you know, help dig our way out of this, this hole that, you know, again, is, is very, very, you know, potentially systemic in nature. So long term increased capital flow to that internet economy certainly helps bitcoin helps crypto assets um but you know in the short term uh, it's not to say that the show can't go on because again you know the fed and this relationship between monetary and fiscal policy i think is going to be here for uh, very much so for the foreseeable future that is an awesome spot to pause um particularly that note of the idea that rejecting and trying to rebuild uh, a system that isn't working is 
despite the protestations of many uh, who don't get it yet or kind of aren't aren't with it yet, um, not a cynical position. It's an optimistic position. It's a bet on human ingenuity and the capacity to change. So, um, Kevin, awesome to have you on the show. Um, I, I want everyone who's been listening and has additional questions to go back and listen again. Write down your specific questions. Uh, you know. Tag us on Twitter with them, and we'll use that as the basis for um, more conversation somewhere, whether here or on Clubhouse uh, or, or wherever. But um, thank you so much, man, for uh, for taking the time today. I know people are going to really like the show, um, and I know it'll be the start rather than uh, rather than just the answer for for a lot of great conversations. Yeah, no, th- thank you, man. Really appreciate you uh, giving me the platform to uh, to kind of riff on some of these thoughts. And obviously, a huge fan of of what you're doing, not only for for the space, but really kind of again, you know, elevating the conversation. I, I think I've uh, been a huge follower of yours for a long time, and and really looking forward to uh, to the next time we can sit down and do this. Yeah, cheers. Whew, that was dense. So, listen, guys. Rather than a big wrap up for me, I just want to say this: I'm really interested in what questions you still have, what other topics you want to explore. If this 101 style format was useful to you, because if it is, I'm really excited to do more of this. Let me know on Twitter, in the YouTube comments, wherever you want to hit me up, what questions you have and what type of topics you want to dig into further, and I will try my best to make it happen. For now, I appreciate you listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.